Many years ago, when I was a younger man, I had the opportunity of attending a seminar on the uh, art and science of negotiating. It was um, put on uh, for a number of us that worked in banking, and in that seminar they taught us various tips and techniques to uh, utilize when you enter into negotiations so that you can arrive at a compromise such that the other party uh, feels like they got what they needed, they were satisfied, yet you were able to walk away with all or most of your goals. So that there was that compromise and everybody felt good about it and you won in the end, which always made me feel extra good. You know, life is uh, full of compromises. And most of them are um, pretty benign and, and necessary, really, to kind of go along and get along in life. But sometimes compromise can be the wrong strategy. And it can produce some really devastating results. For example, I was just reading the other day that from the period 1935 to 1939... England and France compromised over and over and over again with Adolf Hitler and his Nazi party, continually seeking to avoid a a war, a world war, being fatigued and bruised from the war just 20 years before. And so they thought by giving in, by compromising over and over again with him and his ambitions, that they would somehow avoid that worldwide problem. But by the time the allied powers realized the full intent of Hitler, it was too late and the world was plunged into war. Germany was no longer weakened, but was indeed strong enough to come close to conquering the world. According to an internet search I did, 60 million people died in World War II, partially as a result of that series of compromises that led up to the war. And so devastating as compromise can be in the political realm with governments or leaders who are seeking to dominate the world for their own totalitarian purposes, in a greater way, spiritual compromise is even more dangerous and more deadly. For it produces... Ruination, not just temporally, but eternally. People are plunged into the ruin of eternal damnation. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. It's page 1226 in the Pew Bible, if that's what you're using this morning. This is the third letter to a church here in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And the message here is again a very serious one as it was last week. In fact, all of these letters have a very serious tone to them. The topic this morning is the danger of spiritual compromise. Beginning in verse 12, let me read the text. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, 
I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Thus you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. The city of Pergamum was located about 55 miles north of Smyrna. You'll remember me telling you some weeks back that, that these seven cities were postal distribution areas for the Roman Empire. So about 55 miles north of Smyrna was the city of Pergamon, about 20 miles inland from the Aegean Sea. Pergamum was not a seaport city, and thus it was not known really as an economic powerhouse. Instead, it was a center of learning and religion. It sported a 200,000 volume public library which was later given as a gift by Mark Antony to Cleopatra near the end of the first century B.C. So it was a center of learning. In fact, the word Pergamum is the same Greek word translated in the English parchment. Parchment. Parchment is a, a, uh, an animal skin, sometimes called vellum, that is used to write on. It's of a more enduring nature than the um, paper or papyrus that was typical for writing purposes. And the reason that the historians believe that uh, it, was, it was discovered or invented, I guess you'd say, in Pergamum is because in the 3rd century B.C., the uh, king of Pergamum tried to seduce away, tried to lure away the chief librarian of the city of Antioch in Egypt. And most papyrus is made from reeds that grow in and around the Nile River. And so in retribution, they cut off the supply of papyrus to the city of Pergamum and being inventive sorts, they came up with parchment to substitute. This was a city of learning. This is a city that could not get by without um, something to write on. So they would even invent it when it was unavailable to them. It was an old city. It goes back into the 5th century B.C., but really began to rise to prominence around the 3rd century. And it grew in its prominence. In the 2nd century, the kings of Pergamum aligned themselves politically with Rome. They were in, a, in that buffer zone between the Seleucids to the east and Rome to the west. And they sided with Rome early on before many of their contemporaries. And obviously they chose well because as the fortunes of the Roman Empire rose, so did Pergamum with them, becoming the official capital of the province of Asia for the next 250 years. Pergamum was a significant city. Pergamum was an important city. Pergamum was a city that was steeped in Roman culture and theology. The city was thoroughly pagan. 
The center of the city had a thousand foot high citadel or hill and it dominated the skyline for miles around. When you approached the city of Pergamum, you saw this massive hill in the middle of the city and on top of the great hill it was covered with pagan temples. There were temples to Zeus, the supreme Greek deity, temples to Athena, goddess of wisdom, temples to Dionysus, the fertility god that appeared in this part of the world in the form of a bull. And there was a temple to Asclepius, who was the serpent god and considered uh, significant in the issue of medicine and healing. The god of healing, Asclepius. And in fact, the historians tell us that the, the temple of Asclepius was so well known that people would come from all over the world, much like they do to Lourdes in France, in order to be there and to be touched by the God. They would spend the night in the temple, sleeping around on the floor in the darkness, where snakes roamed at will, non-poisonous serpents, but they would crawl all through the temple. And so as you lay there at night on a pallet, you were sick in the temple. If you were touched by a serpent... That was considered to be touched by God Himself and you were supposedly cured of your illness. I know, that is pretty creepy, isn't it? But such was the religious climate. Pergamum. In 29 B.C., they became the first city in Asia to openly support emperor worship. And they, they built a temple to what they called the divine Augustus and the goddess Rama. And so they were openly and, and fully and wholeheartedly committed to the worship of Caesar, the imperial cult. Compared to all the other cities of Asia, all other seven, and we, we read last time about Smyrna and how difficult it was for them there, but compared to all these other cities, Pergamum was the place of the most intense worship of Caesar. A Christian would be in danger once a year in most parts of the empire when called upon to offer incense and proclaim their political loyalty in, by saying Caesar is Lord. But here in Pergamum, it was not a once a year danger. It was a constant threat. This was the hotbed of the worship of Caesar. And so into this atmosphere of open hostility, Christ addresses this little church. And as he does so this morning, we're going to see five facets of his examination of the church at Pergamum that we must understand so that we can discern what makes for a great church in the eyes of God. I've given you the handout. It's the same format as these others. These five facets are laid out for you. So first, let's look together at the command. The command, it's in verse 12, to the angel of the church at Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. Again, it draws, John draws back upon the, the vision that he saw earlier of the risen Christ, the, the ascended one, where there in chapter 1, verse 16, Christ is spoken of as the one with the sharp two-edged sword that proceeds from his mouth. That imagery actually flows through the book of Revelation. This, this sword called a Ramphia was a, was a long broadsword. It, it was a devastating kind of weapon. And it, it appears here a couple of times in chapter 2. 
It appears there in chapter 1, verse 16, and significantly over in chapter 19, verses 15 and 21. We won't go there. But there it clearly denotes the force of a conquering warrior who, who conquers and slaughters his enemies and brings into judgment all who are in opposition. So this sword, this great two-edged, sharp two-edged sword is a, is a reference to this judgment of Christ as the conquering king and warrior. And of course, your minds immediately flip over to Hebrews chapter 4, right? Verse 12, where it says the Word of God is that sharp two-edged sword. And, and I think we can make that correlation. It is the Word of God by which He slays His enemies and brings the world into judgment. For those who have by faith embraced the Lord Jesus Christ, it is the judgment is past and it, and it is an eternal salvation they enjoy, but those who have rejected Christ, it is a judgment of eternal damnation. Caesar may bear a sharp and fearsome sword, but he can only slay the body. It is the Word of God that is more fearsome than anything, anything man can muster. And so here, the one with that sharp two-edged sword begins and he commends this church, verse 13. He says, I know where you dwell. In full and complete knowledge the Lord Jesus Christ has of their circumstances. He is the one who walks among the lampstands. He is the one with the burning gaze and He examines all things. He says to this church, I know your circumstances and I know two very significant things about the circumstances. I know where you live. And I know your loyalty, right? Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. The idea of dwelling here is, is, is the idea of a permanent residence. This is not just something they are, that they are residing in temporarily. This is not just a, a place where they can leave anytime they want. This is their home. This is the place where their children have grown up. This is the place where their parents and their grandparents have grown up. This is home for them and it is the place of Satan's throne, he says. They've got no place else to go. They live in the throne room of Satan himself. Now, there are lots of bad neighborhoods in America, for sure. Right? There are places where drugs and crime are rampant, where none of us would want to live. And God might call you to live there and to minister there in that kind of a community. It's possible. There are also places that are openly hostile to Christ and His Word. Where there are, they are vocal and oppressive about their opposition to Christianity. And God may cause you to live and minister in one of those kinds of places. God may even call you overseas to live in another country where idolatry is open and flagrant and oppressive. There's a couple that we know, a former student of the Pastoral Training Institute in India, PTI. I had the pleasure of, of teaching him along with others a couple of years ago when I was there. And God has called this family to move to Nasik in India, which is the center for the worship of the elephant god Ganesh. Art tells me that it's, it's one of the four most holy areas of Hinduism. And so the oppression and the opposition and the danger of living and ministering in this part of the world is significant. But none of these places carry the title 
where Satan's throne is. Or look, the end of verse 13, where Satan dwells. The very throne room of the one who would seek to slaughter us eternally. What was it about Pergamum that caused Christ to say that Satan, the prince of the power of the air, had established his throne room there? What was it that caused him to speak to this church versus all the other churches that were that were certainly planted in the midst of pagan culture for him to call out this city of Pergamum in this small church and say, I know where you live, you live in the throne room of Satan himself. Some suggest because of the significant worship of the snake god Asclepius, which was also known as Savior, that 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 was the reason it's called Christ calls it the throne room of Satan. And, you know, you could sort of make that jump, right? Satan and the serpent and so forth. But he doesn't say that you live in the throne room of the serpent. He says you live in the throne room of Satan. Others think it was because the temple of Zeus had this massive altar that stuck out from the side of the hill and could be seen from miles away. And, and so because of that, it was called the throne room of Satan. But I think the answer lies in the fact that this was the center of the imperial cult. This was the center of Caesar worship. At this point in time in the history of the church, the greatest danger they faced was the danger of extermination from the Roman Empire itself. And the, and the, the unbending, inflexible requirement of the Romans that you bow and say, Caesar is Lord. And so for this small church... Situated here in Pergamum, the, the center of the, of the empire in the east. The place where the worship of Caesar began in the east in 29 B.C. That this is the reason that Jesus calls it the throne room of Satan. The place where Satan dwells. I know where you live, he says. Beyond that, I know your loyalty, verse 13. I know your loyalty. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you. He's saying, no, I know your loyalty. You have not cracked. You are living in the very throne room of Satan himself and you are under the official and intense pressure of the Roman government to break you, yet you have not cracked. You have stayed loyal to Christ. You are steadfast in your proclamation that Jesus is Lord, even if some among you have to die for it. Look again at verse 13. Notice it says, did not deny. It's a past tense here. You did not deny even in the days of Antipas. He's pointing to some event, historical event in the life of this church that has occurred sometime in the past. We don't know how far in the past it could be very recent. It could be a, a, a while longer before that. But somehow in the past, the persecution had come to such, an, such a boiling point, such, a, such an intense place that one of their own had been actually killed in the process. This one, Antipas, notice he's called my witness, my faithful one. Same title, by the way, that, that is applied to Christ himself over in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. Antipas bears the same title, my faithful witness. 
I wish we knew more about this man, Adipus. Someday, if those of us who know Christ in a saving way, we will meet him, won't we? What a pleasure it will be. Biblically, there is nothing more that we know about him than this passing reference. Church tradition, though, sort of fills in the edges and it's not inspired, so it's, we can't be assured that it's truthful. But what is passed down to us through the history of the church is that Antipas was called before the Roman proconsul. And there he refused to sprinkle the grains of incense and declare Caesar his Lord. His punishment was that he was imprisoned in a bronze bull and then slowly roasted to death. We don't know, but it says, Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. He had stood firm. He had stood firm and he had not denied the faith. Notice he's called my witness. From that, the Greek word behind that witness, we get the English word martyr. He was my martyr, my faithful one. Despite all the pressure, despite all the reasons to bend or flinch or give in, Oedipus did not give in and nor did the church. You hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith. These speak of loyalty. What's being talked about here is loyalty to Christ. It is the churches and the individuals within that church, their personal loyalty to Christ, their refusal to deny Christ. When it says you hold fast my faith, I, I don't believe he's talking about doctrine because momentarily they're going to speak of some doctrinal problems. So what do you think he's, he's speaking of Jesus is using these two terms that you do not deny my name and my faith, that together they are talking about loyalty to the person of Jesus Christ, the person and work of Christ. This church is faithful in the midst of a hostile world. And that's a challenge, beloved, to all of us, isn't it? To be faithful in the midst of a hostile world. To be able to face down the opposition. To not bend, to not flinch, to not wilt. Things look good here. You, if you stop at verse 13, you think this church, Pergamum, is just like the church before it, Smyrna, in which there is no correction, no condemnation. Everything looks good on the surface here. But all is not well. All is not well here in the church of Pergamum. There are some rotten apples in the barrel here. And if something is not done, unless they are cleared out, this church is in serious trouble. What's wrong with the church here? Text says that there's some Balaamites and some Nicolaitans that had found their way into the fellowship. And thus the condemnation, condemnation verses 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Jesus recounts for them, draws their mind back to the wilderness wanderings, all the way back to the book of Numbers. Numbers chapters 22 through 25. Speak there of what is known as the sin of Baal Peor. A sin in which ultimately 24,000 Israelites were slain because of. You'll remember it as 
You read through Numbers yourself here just some months ago, right? As we were reading through the Scriptures. There, Balak, the king of Moab, saw the nation of Israel passing through his land and, and he was terrified of them. And he, and he called out this, this interesting prophet of God, he's called, whose name is Balaam. And he hired him to curse the nation of Israel. You remember, he brought him up on a high mountain and he said, curse them. And, and so Balaam said, I can only say what God says. And so every time Balak would call him out to curse him, that Balaam would end up inadvertently and not by his own desire, but he would end up blessing Israel. Balak never got his money's worth, at least not according to chapters 22 to 25. But as you read a little further and you get to actually Numbers chapter 31, verse 16, you find out something interesting. That after Balaam had failed in his public attempts to, to curse the nation of Israel in the employment of Balak, he employed a different strategy. He showed Balak how he could entice the nation of Israel out from under the blessings of their God. And so he advised Balak to entice Israel by, by, by enticing them to participate in Moabite worship. Just get them to worship along with you. And God will be forced to curse them. So Jesus recalls that event where Balak, under the advice of Balaam, he, he appealed to the baser desires of Israel. The desire for meat instead of manna. The desire for pornea instead of purity. Look at the text again here, verse 14. He put stumbling blocks. He tripped up the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols, idol meat, and to commit acts of immorality. That is, to engage sexually with the Moabite women. He appealed to their fleshly desires, and in the process, he seduced them away from their allegiance to God. Jesus says that modern-day Balaamites have entered the church of Pergamum. There, apparently, they are teaching members of the church to relax their scruples, to not completely break with the world of idolatry, to tell them that it's okay to participate on the edges with idle practices. To not have such a sharp edge about you. To not draw such sharp distinctions. To not separate yourself so distinctly from the world around you. From your family members. From your friends. But not only was the church under attack by the Balaamites who taught and tolerated those who lived for the flesh, but it also tolerated those who rejected the importance of God's law. Verse 15. Thus you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We were introduced to the Nicolaitans back in chapter 2 and verse 6, right? There it was a, it was a commendation to the church at Ephesus, verse 6, Yet you do have this, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. But the church at Pergamum, they didn't hate the Nicolaitans like they ought to. They were open to them. They were unwilling to confront them. They were compromising with the Nicolaitans. Who were these Nicolaitans? Well, they were a group of heretics who basically taught that you could become a Christian, you could... You'd be a Christian and you could still live in sin. That was their basic teaching. 
in direct contradiction to what the Apostle Paul says over in Romans 6. They taught that our liberty in Christ enabled us, freed us from God's law, and we could live in sin. And the grace of God would cover it. Historically, the origin of the Nicolaitans is a little bit mysterious, a little clouded. Some of the early church fathers attributed the founding to one of the original deacons from Acts chapter 6, the name of Nicholas. They say that Nicholas apostatized and, and with him drew away followers. We don't know for sure, but we do know that the church historian Eusebius in the 4th century A.D. said that this sect had disappeared by his day. So whatever exactly their origin was, we do not know, but the sect of followers of the Nicolaitans had disappeared by the 4th century, the 300s A.D. Eusebius credited actually the Apostle John in his book of Revelation for waking up the church to the danger of this antinomian group. So you've got Balaamites attacking the church. You've got Nicolaitans attacking the church. And together, these two groups that have a sort of a similar feel to them of false teaching are encouraging the believers not to be steadfast, not to retain their, their sharpness, not to make themselves so different from the world around them, to live a lifestyle that accommodates their culture a little bit, to the various religious expressions of the city in which they live, the various social customs of their society. Don't be so different. Don't be so tightly wound. Don't be so hung up. Put it in modern terms. Now, only a portion of the church had fallen prey so far to this teaching. But their wickedness makes the whole assembly guilty. The whole church is guilty, even though the whole church is not participating. The whole church is guilty. Guilty of not taking action to root them out. You remember again the church at Ephesus. Its commendation was in verse 2, I know your deeds, your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot endure evil men. The whole church there at Ephesus would not put up with this kind of thing and, and forced it out of the fellowship. The church at Ephesus had its problems with, with its love meter was kind of low. But at least when it came to doctrinal deviation, the church at Ephesus held firm. Here, the church at Pergamum, they were not holding firm. Like a cancer, this teaching was spreading through the fellowship. It was invading the church. Unless they acted quickly to remove it, Jesus threatens to come. And He will perform divine surgery. But He will not use a scalpel, He says. He will use a broadsword. What should a follower do? What should a follower of Jesus Christ do when confronted with sin? What should I do when confronted with my sin? What should you do when confronted with your sin? Take a look at verse 16, the correction. Repent. Do you see it? What do we do when confronted with our sin? We repent. Repent, therefore, or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. We get a feel for the seriousness of this problem by Jesus' threatened judgment here in verse 16. This is not a small matter. 
This is not an insignificant problem in this church. They can't just say, oh, well, it's just a few. And, you know, they're really kind of loving people. And by the way, they're related to this prominent family in the church. And, you know, if we did that, it would cause all these problems. And some people wouldn't understand and they'd leave. And, you know, how it goes. But Jesus says, repent, repent, therefore, else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Who are the them, by the way? See, he had a seat of the pronoun them. Some think it is the Nicolaitans and the Balaamites themselves. That, that that's the one who is being threatened with war. And that might be appealing on the surface. But this letter is addressed to the pastor of the church, right? Remember, we went over that singular pronouns and through him to the whole church itself. So he's speaking to the pastor of the church at Pergamum and he says, repent, therefore, or else I am coming to you quickly, pastor, and I will make war against them. The church, the church, he will make war against the church. He will make war against the heretics for their heresy and he will make war against the church. For the fact that they allowed, they were guilty of allowing it to happen, of their compromise. Again, this reference to making war with the sword of my mouth, verse 19, it, it brings to mind a picture of devastating judgment. Revelation 19.15, it says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. There the sword of Christ's mouth is coming at judgment at the end of the millennium, or the, excuse me, at the beginning of the millennium to establish his kingdom. Here he's threatening a church. He's threatening a church that he's going to come and make war against them. You don't want to go to war with God. It's a war you cannot win. This church has one alternative. There's no compromise left for them. They have been boxed into the corner. There are no terms of peace for which they can sue. They have one choice. They will repent or they will be extinguished. And so thus, the challenge comes to them. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the identical language from Christ's letters to the other churches. It's an invitation to true believers to respond. Not to say, well, yeah, but that was them and this is us. You know, that's their problem. They got to deal with that. But he was an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. Beloved, he's talking to us today, right now. He's talking to us. The true believer here, the overcomer, verse 17, you see it, to him who overcomes. There's a threefold promise of reward. Threefold promise of reward given here to him who believes, to him who heeds and overcomes. There's been no end to uh, opinion as to what this threefold reward is all about. Right? I'll give, verse 17, some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, 
and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. What in the world is that? Well, there are all kinds of opinions, and I'm not going to take the time to go through all of them. I'm going to give you what I think is the best view. How's that? We'll just cut to the chase here. The hidden manna. Contextually, we're in the Old Testament, right? We've, verse 14, we've talked about Balaam and Balak. And there, Balak seduced the nation of Israel to go after idle meat. Remember, meat instead of what? Manna. That was God's food for them in the wilderness. And yet they had grown contemptuous of what God had been providing. And so the idle meat was attractive to them. And so I think that that context is here for us. And beyond that, in Exodus chapter 16, you can just pencil these down and go look them up on your own. Exodus 16, verses 32 to 34. Combine that with Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4. We know that, that a, some manna was put into a pot and, and placed within the Ark of the Covenant to be preserved. Now, Hebrew tradition says that when the temple was destroyed in 586 B.C., that Jeremiah rescued the pot of manna from the Ark of the Covenant so that it would not fall into the hands of the Babylonians and that he, he hid it and it would, it would be miraculously preserved until the coming of the Messiah. This manna, this pot of manna, that's Jewish tradition. That's not the Bible. That's Jewish tradition. And that when the days of Messiah came, that it would be recovered and it would once again become food for His people. I think that's the hidden manna being talked about here. Beyond that, he talks about a white stone, right? I will give him a white stone. Literally, a, a small stone or a pebble that is white. And this stone seems to draw its significance from the Roman custom of giving periodically throughout the year to the masses these little white stones that were like tickets or you know, admission tickets. Because periodically, Rome would give away free distributions of bread to the masses. They would also invite them to various entertainments. But in order to get the free bread and to, and to get into the entertainment, in order to get fed and, and, and uh, party, if you will, you had to have the white stone. This was your ticket. And beyond that, it had to have your name written on it. It had to have your name written on it. And that's the third reward here. It says that there's a new name written on the stone. Kainos in the Greek, new or fresh. Not new in contrast to old, but new in the sense of different in nature. Something superior in quality. Something reflecting the recipient's new status. Same word used over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a, kainos, a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. I think combining these ideas together, what is being promised to the believer here, to the overcomer, and beyond them, through them, to us, is that if we are faithful to Christ, there is a promise to participate in the great messianic banquet. That great event that will celebrate the end of the age. 
That which you probably know as the marriage supper of the Lamb. Spoken of over in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Revelation 19, verse 9. I think what's being communicated here is to him who overcomes, that is to him who truly believes and perseveres to the end, you will have an entrance ticket to the great messianic banquet, that time of celebration of the marriage supper of the Lamb when Christ will consummate His kingdom. How does a person become kainos, a new creature, and gain entrance to the banquet? Maybe you're here this morning and a question is rolling around in your mind. How do I get in? I don't, I'm not sure if I have a ticket. When they're calling the roll, and, do I have the white stone with my name on it? Am I going to get in? Well, there's a few things you need to know. First off, you need to know about God. You need to know that God is your Creator. He created you. He created this universe. And He established it for the purpose of glorifying Him. And He established a system of rule whereby you are obligated to bow your knee before Him in worship and honor. You are to love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. But you don't do that. Indeed, you do not really love God. You love yourself. You love not His rule. You love your rule. You want things your way. You want to be captain of your own ship. The Bible calls that sin. Sin. And the wages of sin is death. This rebellion, this independence from your Creator will only bring you eternal damnation. There's a place for people who rebel against their Creator. The place is called hell. Created for the devil and his angels, the one who first rebelled and then all who would follow thereafter. But God is not willing that all should perish. And so He sent His only begotten Son. Second person, the triune Godhead, God Himself, descended to earth, was born of a virgin, took to Himself human flesh, became a man in every sense of the word that you or I are a man with the exception of our sin. He lived among us. He understands our travails and problems. He understands our temptations. He was tempted in all ways, the Bible says, like unto us, yet without sin. He never sinned. He worked and lived in perfect obedience to His Father, always loving the Lord God with His heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then He offered Himself in your place as a substitute. He took the punishment that belongs to you. He died on a cross that you might live. If you will but embrace by faith His sacrifice. A Christmas gift will do you no good as long as it sits under the tree. You must by faith unwrap the gift and receive the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And if you will embrace by faith His atoning sacrifice on your behalf, the Bible says you will be saved. You will be the overcomer. You will receive the stone with the new name upon it. You will enter into the great messianic banquet. The end of the age. How do we apply this text this morning? I mean, you and I, we don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. That's not exactly our problem. We don't face that issue. We don't engage in open sexual immorality. It's part of worship. These things are are foreign to us. They're abhorrent to us. So are we safe? Are we safe? Can we just kind of, you know, this was interesting. This was, uh, gave me some historical background. That was a fascinating time, Pastor. Sure feel sorry for those people. How does this thing engage you and me? Where does it intersect our lives? Let me take what time remains to me and see if I can walk you through it. Listen up. I'm going to do it with some questions. Questions prick the conscience. Accusations harden the heart. Let me give you some questions. How does compromise happen? How does compromise happen? Well, it happens like this. It happens through a desire to be well thought of by worldly people. It comes from a desire to to be well thought of. The Bible calls it a fear of man. It comes from a desire for forbidden pleasures. Certain material possessions or sexual gratification that God has denied to us. We're dissatisfied with that. It comes from distance from God. Distance. Blocking off certain areas of our life and saying, you can come this far, but no further. Christ, you can't have this piece of my life, this area. It's off limits. comes from disbelief in His Word. Disbelief in His Word. That he, He really doesn't hate it as much as the Bible says He does. My Jesus is not a venging, wrathful, Person, my Jesus is loving and kind and gracious, Santa Claus like. Comes from a denial of the consequences of your sin. I mean, he didn't do anything to me last time. Comes from a defensiveness. I still believe in Christ. Who are you to? Accuse me of anything. I still believe in Christ. Defensiveness with your compromise. These are ways that compromise happens. How have I compromised? How have I compromised? Let me suggest some ways that perhaps are true. How about this? At work, deceiving your customers suppliers or employees by telling them something that's not true 
in order to avoid embarrassment or criticism. Deceiving those that you work with or for. How about deluding your co-workers into believing that you're just one of the boys by your language or your deeds? How about at home? How have I compromised at home? How about this? How about downloading music or video from the Internet that is not lawfully yours? Or receiving a copy from a friend of illegally downloaded music or video? How about disguising from your spouse or your parents where you have been, what you were doing, what you spent your money on? Young people, how about dating someone who does not share your faith and commitment to Christ? Dating someone outside the faith. How about divorcing or contemplating divorce for non-biblical reasons? This is how we compromise. How about at school? How do we compromise at school? How about duplicating someone else's work and submitting it as your own? Cheating, that's what we used to call it. But cheating doesn't begin with D. I got on a roll here, so I stayed with it. How do I compromise a church? How about delaying confrontation over theological or behavioral problems in order to maintain a superficial harmony and unity. These are just a few ways that we compromise in the various spheres of our lives. Third question for you. In what way does my compromise parallel Balaam's and the Nicolaitans. In what way does my compromise parallel the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans? Well, the compromise for the Balaamites was an appeal to fleshly desire, right? Idle, idle meat versus manna, pornea versus purity. The Balaamites appealed to the flesh. The Nicolaitans taught that we don't have to worry about our sin because God will forgive it. Self-serving and aberrant theology. In what way does my compromise parallel fleshly appeals or self-made theology? And finally, the fourth question. When I find myself compromised... What should I do about it? When I've gone through a, an honest self-assessment of my life, I've let the, the light of the Word of God search my heart and I find that I am compromised, what do I do? Verse 16. What is it that we do? You tell me. Come on, I can't hear you. We repent. We repent. It begins with repentance. 
It begins with repentance. We change the way we are thinking and consequently we turn away from the way we are behaving. It begins there. Without repentance, there is no forgiveness of sin. We must turn. You cannot continue on. When you have become under conviction for your compromise, then and there you must cut it off. After we repent, we confess our sin. We confess our sin and we ask forgiveness, right? 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then we pray for strength to overcome our sin. We call out to Christ and say, Help me. Help me to overcome. And fourth, we substitute a behavior or a thought pattern that reflects righteousness. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. You substitute. We repent, we confess, we pray, and we substitute. That's what we do when we find ourselves compromised. Beloved, we're all compromised one time or another. Such is the nature of life, even for the believer. But we must come back. We must come back to the truth. Let's pray. Lord God, we confess our guilt before you. In the area of compromise. Each and every one of us has an individualized place where we fall short. Where we have compromised with fleshly desires or aberrant theology. Places where we have been unwilling to stand or live firmly for Christ but have tried to conceal your glory in us by going along to get along. Whether it be at work or school, our Father, or in the neighborhood or wherever. Our Father, we ask Your forgiveness. We ask Your forgiveness and we ask for Your strength to do something about it. To begin to live for Christ in that particular area. Help us, Lord God, to glorify Your name. We pray in the name of the One, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has redeemed us eternally from our sin and guilt. Amen.